Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, Molly. My name is also Molly. Um, I saw your Instagram story about death as a breakthrough to consciousness and thank you so much for that um i'm 24 and i'm going through a really bad divorce this year i was with my ex since i was 16 um i love him a lot our relationship was really physically and emotionally uh, abusive Um, But we grew up together, and in some ways, I think that he raised me. We've always been one being. I lived for him, and I never learned to be anything outside of him. But I'll always love him deeply. But staying with him was making me sick, and I think it would eventually have killed me. Um, I also started university this year, and I'm really proud of myself. It's been a struggle. I feel like I've died and been reborn a hundred times this year. It will be my 25th birthday on Saturday, and I'll be spending it alone, but I'm trying to stay strong. I just wanted to say thank you so much for your podcast. You've helped me so much. I want you all to know that sometimes when I listen to my voicemails, my response is literally like this out loud. My baby. (laughs) I just want to like reach out and just cuddle you 
when I hear these voicemails because I know this pain. I know these feelings so well. And I know how it feels to be 25. And I know how it feels to feel like you grew up with someone and they're such a part of you that you don't know what's you and what's them anymore. And you don't know what life would even be like without them in your life. And you can't see how things could ever get better. And I love how this voicemail not only was from a 25-year-old who I also relate to this experience so much because I also got married when I was 23 years old and I was way too young and neither one of us had any of our trauma resolved in any type of way. And when it ended, I felt like I was just going to die. I didn't even know how life would go on but it did and it got so much better than I could ever have imagined but I still have really really dark times and so Molly I just want to let you know that you're so brave for sending this voicemail in and I know it's going to touch other people you mentioned that you saw on my Instagram story what I shared about this going into the underworld, this metaphorical jump into death that we make. We die many times throughout our lives and then we're reborn and it sounds like Molly is going through her own rebirth now and part of this Instagram story that I shared said one must journey into the depths of one's own being to face truths of the self as well as of the world. It's a sacred journey. In our culture, however, it's usually categorized as a depression, which must be medicated and eliminated as quickly as possible. And what Molly is going through in this voicemail and what so many of us have experienced is what many depth psychologists call an underworld experience. And these underworld experiences have been explored through myth for the last thousands of years. And underworld experiences are characterized by confusion and grief, alienation and disillusion, rage and despair. And author Maureen Murdoch wrote, there are no easy answers in the underworld. There's no quick way out. Silence pervades when the wailing ceases. One is naked and walks on the bones of the dead. And it sounds really dramatic, but it really is how it feels when we go through these incredibly painful and dramatic life changes. And I'm not sure if any of you are into astrology, but I've come to believe that if we think that the planetary movements and the cosmos don't have any kind of impact on us as human beings, well then that's kind of ignorant. And the first responder or EMT or ask anyone who works in emergency services if shit gets a little weird around the full moon, and it's likely that they will confirm even if they don't quote-unquote believe in astrology, they'll probably confirm that it's the case. 
and I'm recording this on July 21st. You're going to hear this far into the future because I've been being a good girl and (laughs) recording my podcast a little bit in advance. Sometimes I do them right before. I've always been the person to do things right before the deadline, but I'm proud to say I've never missed an episode since I started. There's some fucking weird shit going on right now. Everyone I know personally, all of my deeply, truly loved and beloved friends are experiencing some really catastrophic and big life changes right now. So I think there is some kind of like collective dark night of the soul happening. And you know, going back to this metaphorical death that Molly described in her voicemail that I referenced on my Instagram stories, I also shared, we can't put back together our split off parts or our repressed parts until all of our parts are accepted and reclaimed. And these metaphorical deaths, these dark nights of the soul, when we feel like we're completely, when everything has been blown the fuck up, that is when we're called to just be in the underworld for a while, even though it's scary. And I shared this snippet as well. The changing process of life is represented in life and death, seasons, and the cycles of the moon. We all have to honor the cycles of nature. Life and death are a continuing process where something new is born after something dies. Healing occurs as we allow something to die in order to make room for something new. And author Gertrude Mueller Nelson wrote, every day we die a hundred little deaths in losses and failures in longing and rejections. We die a little with every separation and letting go because we can't love each other and give life unless we also give each other the freedom to be separate. Learning to let go prevents someone from getting stuck in hell and allows one to use the experience for growth, understanding, and healing. And although not everyone returns from a descent, a death and resurrection allows one to emerge from hell healed with the gift of understanding and new confidence. Discovering your true nature occurs as a result of passing through hell. In other words, one passes through illusions to see who one is and always been. If you survive the descent into hell, you will be transformed. This transformation constitutes a death and rebirth experience. Who the person was and what their conscious world was like is no more. All is transformed. These are where the myths of venturing into the castle to slay the dragon and coming back out a victorious hero, all of these myths that we heard, these fairy tale stories that we were exposed to as children, this is where it all comes from. We have to know that part of life are these going into the underworld experiences, these little deaths. And then you come out of these things and then you realize you've learned something. I always say to my listeners, I've said it before and I'll say it again, no matter how much something hurts, you're never going to be going back to the previously unaware version of yourself that you once were. 
because it can be so easy to say, oh no, not again. I thought I'd never get to this process. I'd never get to this horrible dark space again. It's not the same dark space. People always say it's a cliche. Recovery is not linear. And you kind of just, it's one of those things where it's like, you have to love yourself before you can love someone else. It's these sayings that people say, and you just kind of roll them off. I roll them off because you hear them so often. But I want to tell you one that might not be a cliche and maybe you haven't heard. Recovery is more for me like a spiral upwards. And when you're spiraling up, the upwards trajectory is very, very gradual, almost to where you won't notice it. And when you're at the one part of the spiral and it can feel like you're at rock bottom, but when in reality, if you look down, rock bottom is way further down. You're spiraling upwards and there's always going to be moments of down and then you can be propelled upwards with a new knowledge that you didn't have before if you allow yourself to. So thank you, Molly, for this beautiful voicemail. And I think that this little segue is perfect into our final episode of the shame series because dealing with and transmuting and alchemizing our toxic shame is precisely an underworld experience. It's going into some really dark places bravely and taking some new insights and we can be emerged, as I say in the intro of the podcast every week, standing in the ashes of who we used to be. This is the heart of emotional alchemy And that is exactly what I want the heart of my podcast message to be. So, shall we dive into this final episode of our Toxic Shame series? Let's do it. So in the last episode, in part seven, we got into how shame presents itself in peer groups And it makes an appearance in the form of perfectionism and how our school systems perpetuate this. We also talked about how our childhood developmental dependency needs also become bound by toxic shame. Today, we're going to continue talking about the different systems that also perpetuate toxic shame that don't often get spoken about. I was just speaking to my therapist that I'm seeing now about how often it's just so easy to put the blame on parents all the time. And I myself am a culprit of this. And it's easy to do that because that's what the current mental health discourse has surrounded itself with now. It's all about disorder and dysfunction labels and childhood trauma. And here's the thing, it's great to talk about childhood trauma, but I think that if we are to have a truly holistic understanding of how we become toxically shamed, we have to not only look at our childhood environment, and that is incredibly important, but we also have to zoom out and look at what the systems that were surrounding our family system were also saying and how toxically shaming they were. 
And as I mentioned before, we talked about how this happens in the school system in the last episode. And it goes without saying that if you've listened to this far, this is a multi-episode series on shame and each episode builds upon the last and it has been recorded to be listened to chronologically. So if you haven't done so, I recommend that you start with episode one. So let's talk about how shame is embedded into the religious system. And I want you all to know that I'm going to be speaking particularly about the West because that's my experience and that is the research that I've done. Now, in the past episodes, we've been using a case study of our character, Max. Max was a client of John Bradshaw's, who is the author of Healing the Shame That Binds You. And we explored in a previous episode on this series, Max's entire family history. And so, as I mentioned, this is only going to make sense to you if you've listened to the previous episodes. So our character, Max, who had his life destroyed by toxic shame and the effects of it, he was brought up in a very rigid and authoritarian religious environment. Max was taught at an early age that he was born with the stain of sin on his soul and that he was a miserable sinner. He was taught that God knew his innermost thoughts and was watching everything he did. How many of us can relate to this? I myself spent the first part of my religious upbringing in the Catholic church and then the latter half in the United Methodist church. And the part of my Catholic upbringing, I remember hearing this very, very often is, you know, Jesus or God is like watching you. He can see what you're doing. And that thought really freaked me out when I was a kid, imagining this like all powerful force, like watching and uh, wondering when I was going to do something quote unquote wrong. And this is reflective now that I've done a ton of research and now that spirituality and religion has become kind of a geeking out um, research topic for myself. It's actually helped me unravel the effects of the religious toxic shaming that I experienced as a child. And now I feel like I have a very mature understanding, even of like biblical references. Everything is allegory. But the problem is, is that we have so many people, particularly in some of these Midwestern small towns in the United States, like particularly like the one that I grew up in, where even the adults have like a toddler's level understanding of spiritual concepts. And these are the people that are molding the spiritual minds of kids and it's really dangerous and we're seeing the effects of it so going back to max an early traumatic experience of shaming occurred when max was nine years old so a young religious fanatic in his church congregation caught max touching himself in the church bathroom and made a huge scene of it he dragged max into the church and asked him to throw himself down in front of the altar of the crucifixion of Jesus and beg for forgiveness. So many different religious denominations teach a concept of the human being as wretched and stained with something called original sin, right? So original sin 
as taught by some religious uh, sects, means that you're essentially bad from the moment that you're born. Instead of the truth that I believe is that you are actually born a, a beautiful, fresh, clean slate, ready to move into life, right? The teaching of original sin makes up for a lot of the child raising practices that are geared towards breaking a child's unruly will and what these religions believe that a natural propensity towards evil which means that these religions believe that kids have this like natural inclination towards being evil and they almost need it like beaten out of them i spoke briefly in another episode about that new netflix documentary and by the time you listen to it it might be new not new anymore but there is a netflix documentary called shiny happy people and it's all about a sect of christian fundamentalism called iblp and as a brief refresher iblp stands for the institute in basic life principles and it's an organization funded by bill gothard in 1961 and it promotes a form of extremely conservative christian fundamentalism and the organization has seminars programs books and over the years it's faced a lot of criticism and controversy particularly concerning their teachings on child rearing and parenting and some of the basic harmful beliefs that this christian fundamentalist sext sext <laughs> freudian slip <laughs> i was going to edit that out but i'm like i'm just going to leave that in there christian fundamentalist sect that they believe about children are as follows right they believe in blanket authority and obedience. So IBLP promotes the idea of absolute authority for parents, demanding complete obedience from children without question. And this can lead to a lack of individuality and critical thinking in children. They also promote physical discipline. They've supported the use of corporal punishment for even minor infractions, which is physical and emotional abuse and it's completely condoned they also promote sheltering and isolation it encourages parents to shelter their children from evil secular influences and to isolate them from the wider society and what this does is it hinders a child's social development it limits their exposure to diverse perspectives this is a form of abandonment and abuse like we talked about in previous episodes. They also advocate really strict and ancient, outdated gender roles, emphasizing traditional roles for men and women and discouraging any deviation from these norms. They also have really bizarre and harmful views on courtship. So they promote the concept of courtship where parents are heavily involved in the process of even choosing a spouse for their children and this can lead to issues related to autonomy and individual choice in addition to this there's a heavy amount in fundamentalist sex like this of guilt and shame and iblp in particular tends to emphasize guilt and shame as tools for discipline and control which has a 
devastating impact on a child's self-esteem and mental well-being. And lastly, IBLP teaches the suppression of individuality. This sect teaches that individual desires and ambitions should be subordinated to the desires and expectations of the family or community, stifling a child's personal growth. And this is happening right now here in America. And if you haven't watched Shiny Happy People, I highly recommend you check it out. It's a really brilliantly produced documentary, albeit a little bit difficult to watch. But if you have suffered from religious trauma, it will be very, very validating for you. Or if you're just someone who lives somewhere other than the United States, it'll show you how some crazy shit still going on over here. It's like, it's wild. This stuff is still happening. So going back to our case study, our friend Max, it sounds like he grew up in a very similar environment. Max was taught that God was a punitive character. So what does punitive mean? Punitive means inflicting or intended as punishment, right? Many people were raised in in religious environments where they were taught that a higher power above them, whatever name they call it, was a punishing figure. Anyone who's read any parts of the Old Testament will see that. God was petty as fuck in the Old Testament, okay? And it doesn't really track that some all-loving, all-knowing figure would basically be acting that petty, but here we are. So Max often told John Bradshaw, who is his therapist, that he hoped God would forgive him for all the evil things that he had done. And even though Max was brilliant and an incredibly esteemed intellectual, he still clung to some incredibly childish and immature religious beliefs. And this is an epidemic in the West today. Max believed that God was somehow keeping score against him and that he could never catch up. And the reason being is that when we believe in original sin, as though we're born dirty, John Bradshaw wrote, with original sin, you're beat before you even start. John wrote, I often asked myself how anyone could really believe in the fires of hell. Here was Max, whose life was a continuous torment, whose inner voices never stopped their incessant shame spirals. So what more could hell possibly be? Why would a just and loving God want to burn someone like Max for all of eternity? Well, Max believed it, and that's what a therapist has to work with. His shame was greatly intensified by his belief that God knew all of his inner thoughts and would punish him for his perceived sins. So one of the most harmful and toxically shaming mental distortions of many religions is the denial of something called secondary causality. You might be wondering, what the hell does this mean, Molly? Well, this means that according to some church doctrines, the human will is inept. And what that means is there's nothing that a human being can do that's actually of any value at all. 
of himself, the human being is just a lowly worm. He's just a piece of shit. And yes, we're going back to the worm, (laughs) the worm joke. And if you listen to the other shame episodes, you'll get the worm joke. So the denial of secondary causality states basically that only when God works through him does a human being become restored to dignity. It's never actually anything that the human does himself. It's all because of God. But I want to make clear, because this isn't an episode to shame religion or spirituality, I myself have found my own sense of spirituality was a mixture of all different types of practices, and I still find some beauty in Christian mysticism. And the thing about the denial of secondary causality, meaning that our will is nothing, we're just lowly worms with no hope for any sort of real accomplishments unless God is working through us. But the thing is, is that there are certain people in even Christian spirituality who don't agree with this. For example, Thomas Aquinas, who was a Italian Dominican friar and priest, he was uh, alive in around the 12th century. So a long, long time ago, he disagreed with this. He actually believed that man's will was effective. He believed that once someone accepts God into their life, that then the will of the human being plays a major role in their religious life. So as you can see, there are these two interpretations, all within the same belief system, all within Christianity, right? And what most people don't know is that there, throughout thousands of years, have been so many different forms of different types of Christianity, and all the beliefs are all over the place. So as you can see, I'm not a theologian, so I'm doing my best to describe this, not trying to convert anyone to Christianity by any means, but it's really important to understand these things because Christian thought has made up for so many of our morals and values, especially in the West. And so it's really important to know when things are being forced upon you and they don't belong to you. So that's what understanding this stuff has helped me with. So to reiterate, right, the denial of secondary causality as a shaming function of Christianity leads us to believe that we are totally flawed and defective and that we can only sin and we are shame-based to the core and that we need God to be able to overcome this treacherous condition. It's really, really depressing and it's just not accurate. And it doesn't lead to the best of mental health outcomes. It doesn't help us reclaim our sense of agency. So overall, the religious system in general hasn't really given much attention to human emotions. Sure, there are different sects and denominations of religious belief that are highly emotional, but overall, and from a general perspective, there's not a lot of permission to show your emotions. So there are pretty much two basic types of religious structures. One is Apollonian and the other one is Dionysian. 
And neither one of these basic types of religious structures really permits a true and healthy expression of emotion. So if you were raised in an extremely religious upbringing, similar maybe to what I've described up until this point, not necessarily maybe be like in IBLP, that shiny happy people sect of, you know, the Duggar family type fundamentalist Christian belief, even just more of a general, maybe less traumatizing, but still you went to a church where it was like punitive God, God is always watching and he'll know when you're a bad boy or girl, that kind of thing. It even reminds me of like Santa, you know, like since when is God Santa? Like Santa's watching, you're going to get a lump of coal if you're a bad boy, right? So this Apollonian type of religion, this religion is rigid, stoic, and severe, and it's very intellectual. And because of this, outpouring of emotions isn't acceptable. Now, when we look at the Dionysian type of religion, this is the charismatic or culty type of really enthusiastic worship. And these types of worship seem to favor free emotional expression, but if we really look at the reality of it, only certain types of emotions can be shown and in certain ways. There are emotional outbursts, but they have no true connection with feelings. And this outburst type of religiosity is often a way to get the emotions over with. They're poured out, but when we're expressing them in this way, they're not really being experienced for very long. Honest emotions, especially anger and rage, are not permitted in either of these types of religion. And the same is true of sexual feelings. Religion has really perpetuated sexual shame. And some interpretations of the Protestant reformers actually imply that original sin was actually sexual desire. So really tying sexuality with that disgusting, lower than human, you're dirty. So some of us were raised where immediately our first understanding of human sexuality or exploring our bodies was immediately rejected as sinful and bad. And some religious interpretations equate desire and sexuality with the result that any kind of strong desire is wrong or should be prohibited. One of the ways that religion shames is through perfectionism. And we talked about perfectionism on the last episode, but here we're going to be viewing it through the lens of how it presents itself in religious environments, particularly here in the West. Oftentimes with religion, you'll hear a lot of moral shoulds. You should, you ought to do this, you must do this, and these shoulds, oughts, and musts have been approved of by subjective interpretations of religious doctrine. And it's going back to what I'm saying earlier, where we have adults that basically have a toddler's understanding 
of the allegory of some spiritual texts and take them literally. The Bible has been used to justify all sorts of blaming judgment and even horrific acts of murder and torture if we're thinking all the way back to like the inquisition religious perfectionism teaches a kind of behavioral righteousness there is a religious script which contains these certain standards of holiness and righteous behavior that you should adhere to and it's these standards that dictate how to talk and how to dress, how to walk, how to behave in almost every single situation. And if you somehow depart from these standards, you are sinful and bad and wrong. What a perfectionistic system like this creates is a sort of how to get it right script. And these kinds of scripts teach us how to act loving and righteous. It's actually, in these types of religious practices, it's more important to act like you're loving and act like you're righteous than to actually be or embody the qualities of loving and righteousness. And this is what we see now. We've seen it for hundreds and thousands of years, but we're really seeing it play out now in America. It's this feeling of righteousness and acting very sanctimonious these are ways that toxically shamed individuals use to interpersonally transfer their own shame onto other people it makes me think of how for some reason why is it that the most conservative male politicians or the most conservative you know, I call them like Mick churches, like preachers at these huge industrial religious complex churches. They always end up being the guy that gets caught having his dick sucked by a male prostitute in a bathroom or visiting like male prostitutes for quote unquote massages or something like that, right? And there's nothing inherently wrong with doing that. It's just the fact that they will preach and even maybe send their own children to conversion therapy, but behind the scenes, they will be taking part in the very types of activities they shame other people for, right? This is a tale as old as time. So now let's talk about religious addiction, because you can be addicted to religion. All compulsive and addictive behavior, a core ingredient, is mood alteration. Addiction has been described as a pathological relationship to any mood-altering experience that has life-damaging consequences. And it's been said for quite a few years now that toxic shame has been suggested as the core and fuel of all addiction. Religious addiction is also rooted in toxic shame. And religious addiction can also contribute to mood-altered states through various different religious behaviors. Someone can get feelings of moral righteousness through any form of worship. They can fast, pray, meditate, and even like this isn't just Christianity, they can buy crystals, they can say that they have all the the sacred starseed light codes 
They can go through sacramental rituals, speak in tongues, quote the Bible. Any of these things can be a mood-altering experience. And if someone is toxically shamed, these types of experiences can be immensely rewarding. The followers of any kind of religious system can say, we're the good ones, and the other people that are not like us, they're the bad ones. And this can feel really exhilarating to the souls of people who are toxically shamed. Righteousness is also a form of shameless behavior. So what is righteousness? Moral righteousness refers to like a state or quality of being morally upright or virtuous. It reminds you of someone who exhibits behavior where they're almost feeling a bit better than other people. They are morally right. They can stand fast in the face of all temptations. They'll stand up for what's right. And righteousness is not inherently inherently bad, but what it can do is it can go into more toxic direction when we're talking about toxic shame. So as I mentioned, righteousness can also be a form of shameless behavior. So remember from the very beginning of this series, since healthy shame says that we can and inevitably will make mistakes, then righteousness becomes a kind of shameless behavior. And by that, it means I, I am above making mistakes because I am righteous. And just this standard that's set by a lot of religious systems is a major source of toxic shame for many, many people. So now let's zoom out even further. The cultural system in general. The author T.S. Eliot wrote, This was a descent of godless people, their only monument, the asphalt road, and a thousand lost golf balls. And he wrote this quote in his book, The Wasteland. He made a strong case for the hopelessness of our modern society and how we are sick and devoid of meaning. And John Bradshaw also saw a sick family system as being built on the rules of poisonous pedagogy. And we talked about this in previous episodes. Poisonous pedagogy is the idea that you should respect your parents above all else and that parents are essentially gods. You need to respect them. Put aside all of your feelings. It doesn't matter what you went through. Respect your mom and dad. And these types of societal rules about family systems and poisonous pedagogy, they deny our emotions. And this sets us up for a sort of psychic numbing that leads to eventual addictive behaviors. And these rules, it's important to know where they come from. They come from the time of kings and like feudal lords. They're non-democratic and they're based on this kind of master-slave type inequality. They promote an obsessive sense of staying in line and being obedient. They're rigid 
and they deny a certain sense of like organic human vitality. Good children are defined in these types of systems as meek, subservient, considerate, unselfish, and perfectly law-abiding. You know that phrase of children are seen and not heard? Think about that. That became of just a part of our vernacular for a really long time. And these types of rules allow no place for spontaneity, inner freedom, inner independence, and a sense of critical judgment unfolding into who you are meant to be. It's impossible in these systems. These rules cause parents, even parents that are well-intentioned, that's the saddest part, to abandon their children. And we've talked about this in previous episodes on this series. This type of abandonment creates the toxic shame that we've been talking about. Our society right now is compulsive and addictive. John Bradshaw, whose work has inspired this series, did most of this work in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And he's no longer here with us, but I can only imagine what he would have to say about our society now, here in 2023 and beyond. Our society is highly addictive. We have millions upon millions of sexual abuse victims Millions of lives are seriously affected by alcoholism and drug addiction and no telling how many more through other kinds of drugs and prescribed drugs. Millions of families have sexual and physical violence, overt abuse going on that will never be reported. Millions upon millions of people all across the gender spectrum suffer from eating disorders. We have no actual data on work addiction or sexual addiction, really. And there's millions of people that struggle with gambling addictions, shopping addictions. And we talked about it before. There's no data on things that are like socially acceptable addictions. If toxic shame is the fuel of addiction, then we have a massive problem of shame in our society at large. A big indicator of the hopelessness that's rooted in and results from our shame is this feverish, compulsive lifestyle that so many people take part in. Eric Fromm made an extensive diagnosis of this in his book, The Revolution of Hope. He saw what he called our sense of overactivism as a sign of the restlessness and lack of inner peace that flows from the core of our toxic shame. He believed that we were human doings and not human beings because so many of us are living with no inner life. And it's because toxic shame won't let us go within. It's too painful for us in there. It's too hopeless in there. Sheldon Bernard Kopp was a psychotherapist and author, and he wrote, we can change what we're doing, but we can't change who we are. So think about it this way. 
if you believe that you are flawed and defective as a human being, then technically there's something wrong with you. You are a mistake. You are hopeless. You didn't make a mistake. You're not feeling hopeless. It's who you are at your core. There is a a phrase, and I'm not sure who said it. I tried to find a source, but I can't. But it kind of goes like, success is different at different stages of development. From not wetting your pants when you're a kid, to being well-liked in childhood and in teenagehood, to getting laid when you're an adult, to making money and having prestige and fancy cars and a hot spouse and a house later in adulthood, to getting laid in middle age, to being well-liked in old age, and then to not wetting your pants again when you're an old person. (laughs) What's right about that description is the emphasis on making money, having prestige, and being well-liked. It feels like that's all that matters now. There is a play called The Death of a Salesman by an American playwriter named Arthur Miller. And Arthur Miller was able to create a really great tragic hero out of an ordinary common man. The character Willie Loman was a symbol of the American success myth. And in this play, Willie lives his life based on the belief that success is being well-liked and making money. But in the play, he dies lonely and broke and ends up taking his own life in order to get the insurance money which would prove he was successful to the world. In his Poetics, philosopher Aristotle states that the power of a great tragic hero results from the combination of his nobleness coupled with some tragic flaw. So in the death of a salesman, Willie is noble. He's willing to die for his faith. But it's his faith that is the tragic flaw. He really believes that if a man makes money and is well-liked, he'll be a success. And that that's what it means to make it. This success myth also preaches a kind of rugged individuality. You have to make it on your own. You have to be a self-made man. And in this myth, money and its symbols become the measure of your worth. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more 
and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A man in his 50s with a low income has to feel this deep shame of this belief system. And as much as we might protest all of this, money and fame has an enormous power in our lives. I read somewhere that now kids growing up, if you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, the most common answer is they want to be an influencer. And as I mentioned before, I'm sure John Bradshaw would just shudder to see where we've come and we need a massive course correction of these types of beliefs and the way we seek validation. And we deeply need to reconnect with our inner lives. We need to be able to die these small deaths and come out reemerged with the ability to build new belief systems free of this internalized toxic shame. So we can't talk about our fucked up society and the toxic shame inherently baked in without talking about the rigidness of sex roles. Rigid sex roles are still baked into our society. We're using them as measurement tools of perfection. There are ways to be a real man and ways to be a real woman. And before we're even born, there's a blueprint of how to be a man and how to be a woman. Real men, when you think about the stereotype, they're rugged, they act, they don't talk, they're silent, the strong, silent type. A real man never shows weakness, emotion, or vulnerability. And real men win, they don't lose, and they never give their opponent an advantage. Now on the other side, real women are to be the helpers of real men. They are the caretakers of the domestic world. They're emotional, vulnerable, and fragile. They're peacemakers. They look for everlasting romantic love. They look for a prince that will come and reward them for all they've sacrificed. The reward being that they will be taken care of for the rest of their lives. And for a while, many people think like, oh, these roles are a thing of the past. It's not as bad as it used to be. But just take a look at the way parents take care of little boys and little girls, especially when we were growing up, right? So speaking for myself, like maybe we were growing up in the late 80s to early 90s, for example. Notice the way that the sexes are even presented in children's toys, right? Just take a walk down the aisle of children's toys. Child's play is the precursor of the adult world of work. And children's toys and clothing are still really sexist. Watch the way a mom and dad handle their girl child and then watch the way they handle their boy child. Sometimes they won't even touch them in the same way. So these rigid role scripts are inherently shaming in that they are caricatures of what maleness and femaleness is. They are over identifications with the parts of us, but they fail to allow for completion and wholeness of 
being able to be many things at once and not follow a set script. Each of us has both male and female hormones. Male and female as a sex is determined by the majority of hormones we possess, right? We're talking about sex and not gender here. To be truly whole, we have to embrace both of these masculine and feminine aspects of ourselves. This is the core of psychological integration. We need to integrate our opposing sides in order to be complete and whole. And the rigid sex roles in our society set standards which don't allow for wholeness and completion. And these standards shame these opposing parts of ourselves. This is how a man, for example, might be shamed for crying or embracing his vulnerability or a woman might be seen as a bitch for being assertive and actualizing her more masculine energy. I know this all too well. I'm a very assertive, outspoken person and I've always known that if I was a man in the workplace, I would be seen as a go-getter, getting the job done. But as a woman acting in the exact same way, I've been called a nag. I've been told that I lack grace and tact by my manager of my last role that I had, right? So this is still playing out in society today. Another way that these toxic, shaming, and rigid sex roles used to play out is like the myth of being a perfect 10, right? Think about it like, oh, she's a 10 or, oh, she's an eight, right? Now you have people saying like, oh, that girl is mid. And when you say someone's mid, it means that they're kind of just like meh, right? This is kind of like the cultural jargon now, but it's still the same, 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 but different. Our culture presents a physical perfectionist system, which is incredibly and cruelly shaming to people that don't meet that expectation. I heard this phrase, right? And I think I've said it maybe before on the podcast. You're not ugly, you're just poor, right? I recently saw a TikTok going around. I still don't have TikTok, I haven't given in. But thankfully I sometimes get to see some of the more fucked up ones because they just make their way onto Instagram or other social media platforms. But Kylie Jenner took a video of herself with a TikTok filter that ages you. And so it can turn you into a much older version of yourself. And she's depicted holding the phone up to her face. And you can see it's it's got a view of her as she actually is, which is LOL to even think that's how she actually is because she's literally had so much surgical intervention, clearly. And then the other frame shows her with this aged TikTok filter. And you know what? She doesn't look that bad. She just looks like an older person, but she literally looks so horrified. And then what she does is she's looking in the camera and she goes, "Mm, no, (laughs) no, no, we can't have that. Right? So what she's saying is, "Ugh, I am horrified by this older version of myself. And What people don't understand is that people like the Kardashians have enough money to literally make getting surgery and tweaking their appearance their fucking job. For the rest of us, we don't have that ability. And so hence the phrase, you're not ugly, you're just poor, right? So going back to this myth of the perfect 10, the perfect man or woman is supposedly a 10, 
And there was even a movie in the 80s with a famous supermodel named Bo Derek called 10, right? Which really gave a lot of life to this mythology. The perfect 10 has certain attributes that enhance the sexual shaming which occurs in our society. So when I was growing up, the perfect 10 had huge boobs and was really skinny, spray tanned, bleach blonde hair, right? Low rise jeans, like there was an image. Now we're seeing it to be different, right? We've seen the rise of this slim, thick body where you're supposed to have a body that really can only be created by surgery. These bodies don't happen. And even after surgery, these influencers go on and edit the shit out of their pictures. One of my best friends saw Kim Kardashian in real life because I'm from Wyoming and a good friend of mine was going to a wedding at a ranch in Wyoming and it happened to be right next to the ranch that Kanye West owned in Cody, Wyoming. And my friend told me that she saw Kim Kardashian out jogging and ironically, she was literally jogging and she said that she was jogging with like five security guards. (laughs) But my friend said, that seeing Kim Kardashian, even from a bit of a distance running, that her body looked completely different than what you see on social media. She's very short. She's like, I think under five foot. And she just looked like a cartoon. My friend said that she just looked, it looked fucking bizarre. And like, it wasn't real and it didn't look good either. And I'm not shaming Kim Kardashian. I think that people should do what they want with their body. If you want to get surgery, this is not to shame surgery. But it's just the fact that there's always a beauty standard and it's getting more and more and more unachievable. If you even just go back and watch movies from the 80s, like I just watched All the President's Men the other day and a couple of the actresses in it were like super heartthrobs of their time. And now we would look at them as mid right? Like we would be like, oh, they're not much to look at, right? Because they don't look glossy as fuck. I just read an article the other day and it was basically talking about the rise of smartphone face. And it's just, we have a completely different understanding of beauty now. And I feel I feel bad for my millennial counterparts because we had unrealistic beauty standards, but I feel even worse for people growing up now with what's going on. So the perfect 10 for a man also exists. He's got to be muscular, jacked, tanned, proportionate, and maybe he has a really big dick, right? And God forbid you have a small penis. So these physical ideals have caused so much suffering and shame to so many people all across the gender spectrum and therapists see case after case after case of person who's suffered intense shame over the size or functioning of their genitals the way that they look women think that their vagina is supposed to look like this perfect little thing and they don't realize that vaginas can look all sorts of different ways same thing with penises right and this is perpetuated in society you hear people talk on on tv or comic routines making fun of genital sizes and appearances so in our case study of max 
John Bradshaw wrote in his book that he was obsessed with the idea that his penis was too small and he thought he was very unattractive because he had a slight hair lip resulting from being hit in the mouth with a baseball. And he also had acne as a teenager, which contributed to some scarring on his face. And so he tallied up all of these physical data and it increased his pain and shame. And the tragic part of all of this, this is in spite of all the medical data, which John wrote that Max knew about that the average male penis is between five to six inches erect. And the absolute fact that women seemed to find Max enormously attractive. So comparing ourselves to these unrealistic beauty standards to the perfect 10 is a mythical standard and it's a deep source of sexual shame in our society. What really helped me with this was visiting different places, particularly in Europe. For example, I remember being in Paris when I went to travel and some of the women that I found the most beautiful, they were not conventionally attractive by any means, but you could tell that they knew themselves. You can see the skinniest woman in America, by the way, who's wearing clothes 10 sizes too small that, and she hasn't paid attention to her body type. And then you could find a woman and she, this woman, the skinny woman could be perfectly conventionally attractive, right? Meet the beauty standards of the society today. But then you can go to Paris and see a woman who knows her body. She's by no means conventionally attractive. She dresses herself in a way that makes her feel comfortable. Her skin is glowing, not wearing an ounce of makeup. She might even have a really prominent nose, but her eyes are sparkling. She is vivacious and full of compassion and love, and she's living her life, and she just seems free. And so I encourage you to think about that. I guarantee you that you have met some of the prettiest people in your life that meet conventional beauty standards. And you've been like, oh, now that I've met them, they're not as pretty as I thought they were. And you could meet someone who by no means meets the standards of conventional attractiveness. And you're blown away by how much you're drawn to them and attracted to them. And I want you to really think about that. So we talked about the denial of emotions in religion, but our culture doesn't handle emotions very well either. Our culture likes people to be happy and okay. I just shared a tweet yesterday by some guy online with like a very small following, but I just loved the tweet. And the tweet says, boss, the company wants you to know it's okay to struggle mentally. Me, okay. Boss, like, don't though. In other words, all of this mental health awareness stuff is so fucking performative. I worked at a company where the same thing, it was all a performance. You can perform vulnerability, you can perform being accepting of all different types of people, and it can all be a fucking show. And that's what we're experiencing now. We like people to be fine, happy, and okay. We learn rituals of acting happy and fine at a very early age. Think about how many times you've been very upset and someone, even the person that you love might ask you, are you okay? What's going on? I'm fine. 
How many times have you said you were fine when you weren't? How many times have you said you were fine when you felt like the world was completely collapsing in on you? There was a senator that John Bradshaw wrote in his book, um, and I don't even know this senator because John Bradshaw wrote his book back in the 80s and 90s, but he wrote, I often think of Senator Muskie who cried on the campaign trail when running for president. From that moment on, he was history. We don't want a president who has emotions. We would rather have one that can act. And there's only certain emotions that we will accept in our politicians, right? But genuine vulnerability Maybe having the capacity to break down and not be okay, that certainly is not acceptable to us. And as I mentioned before, emotions are definitely not acceptable in the workplace. And if they are, it's a performance most of the time, right? Companies will say, oh, it's okay. Let us know if you need a mental health day or whatever, but God forbid you actually display some types of these behaviors and then it's like, ah, put a lid on it, right? True expression of any emotions that aren't positive or allow you to contribute to society or your job are met with rejection and disdain. And this brings me to another cultural myth. We talked about the cultural myth of the 10, right? Being a 10, the hottie. But now we're going to talk about the myth of the good old boy and the nice girl, right? good boy myth and the nice girl myth are a kind of social conformity myth. They create a real head fucky and a head fucky. Another word for that is also a paradox (laughs) when put together with what we discussed of being a rugged individual. Remember the death of the salesman? You need to make it on your own. How can you be a rugged individual? Be your own man but also conform to all of this stuff at the same time. Conforming means don't make waves, don't rock the boat, go with the flow, be a nice girl, be a good boy. And what message this sends is that we have to pretend all the time. John Bradshaw wrote, we are taught to be nice and polite We are taught that these behaviors, most often lies, are better than telling the truth. Our churches, schools, and politics are rampant with teaching dishonesty, saying things we don't mean, and pretending to feel ways we don't. We smile when we feel sad. We laugh nervously when we're talking about how we want to die or when we're dealing with grief, we make a joke of it. We laugh at jokes that we don't think are funny. We stuff our feelings. We tell people things to be polite that we surely don't even mean. Playing roles and acting are forms of lying. And if a person acts like they really feel and it rocks the boat, they're cast out. They're ostracized. They're scapegoated. We promote acting and lying as a cultural way of life. And living in this way is what causes us to split off into different parts. It's what gives rise to disordered and dysfunctional behaviors. It teaches us to hide and cover up our toxic shame. And this sends us 
deeper into isolation and loneliness. So how do we heal? If you're like me, there might not even be a time that you can remember when you didn't feel shame. But there was a time when you were free of it. Look and try to find a picture of you as a child, maybe smiling with a twinkle in your eye. Find a picture where you look radiant and full of joy. And then find another photo of you maybe when you were younger where you maybe look lost and where that twinkle in your eye was replaced with more of a dark, empty look. Try to ask yourself what happened that took away that joy and replaced it with that darkness and emptiness. And the answer is shame. Shame likely replaced your innocence and your joy and your exuberance for life. It taught you to build a wall of protection and defiance around yourself. Who were you defending yourself against? For some people, it might be a parent. A parent who was so full of shame themselves that they just couldn't help but project it onto you. And oftentimes after being neglected and emotionally abused, sexually abused, raped, we can find ourselves riddled with shame and the belief that we are unlovable and rotten inside. For me, when I was younger, I actually began acting out sexually after my own sexual abuse and I also began shoplifting. I was so fucking angry at my parents, the men that abused me, and all of the so-called authority figures. I wanted to get back at everyone who had taken advantage of me. It's part of the reason why I went into sex work. I thought, well, if I'm going to be abused, I'm at least going to take these fucking people's money. But with the shoplifting, I was finally caught. And I ended up having to go to court for it. And it just increased my toxic shame. And my foray into sex work did not help alchemize that shame either. It just sent me further and further down into a spiral. So you might be asking, how in the hell can I heal from this? I am still on this journey. I'm still working to heal myself and combat against these feelings of toxic shame and you can do it too and it's gonna look a little bit different for everyone and that's why developing a stronger connection with your own intuition and gut feelings and knowing what works for you is important but what i can do is give you a few ideas first you need to stop blaming yourself for any abuse or neglect that you experienced there's nothing, and I repeat, nothing a child can do that warrants physical or sexual abuse or neglect. There is nothing a child can do to cause someone 
to abuse them. You did not cause your own abuse. Next, you need to work on giving your shame back to your abusers. The people who inflict and project their own toxic shame, as the case is with many parents, you can try this exercise. Imagine going inside your body to look for shame. See how you see shame. For me, it's like a cloud of blackness. Others might see it as an ache in their stomach or a pain in their heart. These are ways that you depict. We all have different sensory experiences. Some people might see it, some might hear it, some might visualize it, taste it. However you sense shame, imagine taking it and throwing it back at the people who gave it to you. You're also going to want to start thinking about understanding why you behaved like you did. Instead of viewing yourself as bad for acting out in any type of way or doing certain things that you did, start to view any of these behaviors that you perceived as negative as understandable attempts to cope with abuse and projected toxic shame. It doesn't mean that we give ourselves a pass for any really hurtful things we've done. It's just about developing understanding. So the different types of coping mechanisms that victims of childhood abuse and toxic shame often encounter are, you know, disordered eating, self-injury, or even difficulties with sexual adjustment, like sexualizing relationships, becoming hypersexual, or avoiding sexual contact entirely, or confusingly alternating between these two extremes. This was huge for me. My own sexual abuse, I went into a super hypersexual phase, and then now, what I'm experiencing now and trying to work on with my trauma therapist is feeling sexually repulsed and not even wanting any kind of sexual contact and oscillating between these two extremes is incredibly confusing and painful and i want you to gain an understanding for this and understand that this is the result of abuse and toxic shame and even though it's painful it makes sense and that leads me to the next piece it's incredibly important that you start incorporating self-compassion work. Compassion is the antidote to shame. Imagine when you get bit by a snake or there's a poison, right? Like in fantasy movies, they say, here's the antidote, drink this, it's the only thing that can save you. Compassion is your little antidote potion in your own fantasy movie. Compassion neutralizes the poison of shame and removes the toxins that it creates. The goal is to treat yourself in a loving, kind, and supportive way. Think of a phrase to soothe and encourage yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror. Make eye contact and say this phrase with certainty to yourself. And it needs to be a phrase that you come up with. 
provide yourself with forgiveness. It's going to be a journey, but self-forgiveness is different from letting yourself off the hook or making excuses for negative behavior. The more shame you heal, the more clearly you'll be able to see yourself. And instead of hardening your heart and pushing people away, you will become more receptive to other people. It's really important to work toward forgiving yourself for the abuse itself, the ways you hurt others because of your own abusive experiences and the ways that you've harmed yourself. Don't let toxic shame define who you are. It could take years to rid yourself of the shame that's followed you your entire life. But the important part is that you begin to heal your shame so it doesn't dictate your life anymore. And it's my hope that this series will have provided that crucial first step of understanding. There is nothing wrong with you. You are a human being, not a human doing. All right, everyone, that's it for the free portion of Back from the Borderline. Out of all the things you could spend your time on, out of the millions of content options available, you chose to be here with me. More importantly, you chose to show up for you. Next up is the back half of the episode available to paying subscribers. If you're tuning in from the public BFTB feed, you'll get to hear a preview. I also just want to share with you my gratitude If you've listened through all eight episodes of this series on toxic shame, you did an amazing thing for yourself. You expanded your awareness and regardless of whether or not you feel it right now, these learnings will be embedded in your mind and body as wisdom for the future. This work takes time, it's slow, it's painful, and sometimes You can't even really feel the progress that's being made. But I just want you to offer a moment to yourself to give yourself grace. This is a lifelong journey. There's no finish line and it never ends. And that's part of the beauty of it. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the premium version of the podcast. All right, everyone, we're going to take some listener questions today for the back half of the episode. Our first question is from Amy. Hi, Molly. My name is Amy. I'm 24 years old and I'm from Vancouver, Washington. Um, And I just wanted, well, first of all, thank you for your podcast. I can't even like describe how immensely comforting it's been. Like I've been binging your episodes at work for the past week. And I, I feel like, um, I've found like a corner where, um, I'm getting a lot of like sympathy and empathy and comfort and I just can't, um, yeah, it's just, thank you. Thank you so much for your work. Um, yeah, I've just been, I just feel like I'm at this point, like irredeemable and like an awful person and everyone around me like can see it and they're just not telling me because they, they don't want, they don't want to say it. Um, 
I broke up with my boyfriend because I was kind of in limerence over, and still am, like, a guy twice my age who's married, and I'm still grieving, like, a friendship that ended, and it was completely my fault. She, like, started, like, she and a guy that I felt rejected by, like, started dating, and I just, like, could not handle it, but I also said that it was okay, so I lied. Um, yeah, I'm running out of time, but if you just have any advice, thank you so much. Oh, Amy, I could feel the pain and hurt in your voice. And thank you for the kind words about my work and the podcast. The fact that you mentioned that you found a corner where you feel like you're getting sympathy and empathy and comfort, that's healing in itself. In your voice, I picked this voicemail because to me, just like similar voicemails I played in previous episodes on this Toxic Shame series, I want you, Amy, and all the listeners to hear too. This is what toxic shame sounds like. I feel like I'm irredeemable. Everyone can see it, right? There's something deeply wrong with me. I got into a relationship with a guy twice my age that's married. I lost a friendship. Clearly, I'm broken and fucked up. And that's who I am. That's what I'm hearing in this voicemail. You also said something else that stood out to me. You said, you know, this friend of yours struck up a relationship with someone that you had feelings for, and look, no one maybe is necessarily in the wrong here, but you chose to stuff your feelings and say that it didn't bother you. And this is just another way that we abandon ourselves, stuffing these feelings, pretending things are okay when they're not. And it doesn't mean that you have to lose your shit on either of these people. But what I encourage you to do is find a way to express these feelings. I suggested this for another listener just about a week ago on the podcast. I suggest that you write it out, scream it out. What are the feelings inside of you that need to get out? Something that I've learned because I'm someone who has trauma dumped on a lot of people in my life. I seek validation outside of myself. It's kind of how I'm wired. I feel like I always need to get the advice and opinions of other people to almost tell me that my feelings are okay. But what I underestimated was the power of just being able to validate myself and provide myself with the ability to have a venting board and that can be in the form of journaling sometimes i'll even just record a voice note to myself on my phone um if you are someone who is artistically inclined maybe you can draw a picture maybe you can write a letter to express all of these feelings that you have then burn it i suggest always like ritualizing things is very very powerful but I encourage you to find a space where these feelings that you've stuffed to get them out in a healthy, constructive way that doesn't hurt anyone, that doesn't hurt yourself. It's really, really important. I've mentioned this before, but right now I'm just a couple hours away from finishing Peter Levine. He's the creator of Somatic Experiencing, incredibly, incredibly 
powerful voice in the world of healing trauma. And this book is called Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma. I highly, highly recommend it to every single one of my listeners. So I want to read you a couple quotes from his book that I think will be helpful for you, Amy, and maybe other listeners. He writes, because the symptoms and emotions associated with trauma can be extreme, most of us and those close to us will recoil, and that means like kind of like draw back away and attempt to repress these intense reactions. Unfortunately, this mutual denial can prevent us from healing. In our culture, there's a lack of tolerance for the emotional vulnerability that traumatized people experience. Little time is allotted for the working through of emotional events. We are routinely pressured into adjusting too quickly in the aftermath of an overwhelming situation. Denial is so common in our culture that it has become a cliche. He also writes in the book, In moving through apprehensive chills to mounting excitement and waves of tingling warmth, the body, with its innate capacity to heal, melts the iceberg created by deeply frozen trauma. Anxiety and despair can become creative wellsprings when we allow ourselves to experience our bodily sensations, such as trembling, that stem from traumatic symptoms and feelings. Held within the symptoms of trauma are the very energies, potentials, and resources necessary for their constructive transformation. The creative healing process can be blocked in a number of ways, by using drugs to suppress symptoms and feelings, by overemphasizing adjustment or control, or by denial or invalidation of feelings and sensations. I'm reading you these quotes because I can hear in your voicemail that you're stuffing these feelings. And I want you to think, when have you just allowed them to come out in a safe place for you? It doesn't have to be in front of other people. It's actually better if it's just a process that you allow yourself to move through and go through on your own. And you have to find a way that feels right for you. If you have the ability to do so, you could also seek out a somatic experiencing practitioner or body worker that could help you move through these things and maybe be there for you as a comforting presence as you do this as well. I also think that listening to this toxic shame series and utilizing some of the visualizations and meditation exercises that I've included in the back half of some of these shame series episodes could be helpful for you too. Thank you for this voicemail, Amy, and I'm sending you big hugs and lots of love. Our next question is from Teresa. Hi, Molly. It's Teresa. I'm 27. I'm originally from Boston, but I currently reside in Seattle. I just want to say I'm so proud of you for everything you've been doing for the podcast, and I'm so grateful and thankful for everything. Like, everything has been so incredibly insightful for my recovery journey. Um, I just wanted to talk about this thing. So I'm in a relationship. We've been together for four months. We met over Bumble and we clicked right away. Navigate conflict and everything in this relationship. But sometimes I feel like even though my partner is so understanding and gentle with me, I'm afraid that one day he'll lose patience in terms of just me maybe not being able to access a skill or not being able to proceed wise-mindedly during some conflicts or conversations. And I just, 
this is my first real relationship after having gone through a significant amount of recovery. Um, and so similar to you, how you have been with Zaz since your recovery and that's all you've ever known. You haven't dated while, you know, being recovered and stuff. So just wanted to know if you'd be interested in doing an episode with Zaz or just on your own talking about navigating different conflicts while one partner is still in recovery. So Teresa also recorded a part two of this that I also want to play. Hi, Molly. It's Teresa. Um, I just realized after submitting my last voicemail like two seconds ago that I wanted to um, elaborate further on what I mean by like relationship conflicts and navigating that while, while one partner is on their healing journey. Um, I did listen to your podcast about the um, menstrual cycle and, you know, the seasons. And I think um, where I'm experiencing the conflict most is during those times when my hormones are changing and fluctuating. And that all always impacts um, like my emotions and feelings and thoughts, like a lot of PMS symptoms, very irritable and moody. And I think that is definitely affecting the relationship in terms of the conflicts that we have to navigate together. So again, um, my suggestion or request is if you could do an episode on how to navigate relationship conflict while also experiencing these PMS and big emotions where I feel like all my skills are completely gone when I'm in these irritable states because my hormones take over and I really hate that and I want to know if you have any advice or if Zaz has any advice on how to navigate those kind of conflicts caused by PMS emotions. Thanks. Hard, hard relate, Teresa. First, I just want to, again, as usual, say thank you for the kind words. I'm really glad that the podcast can be a companion for you on this journey and your recovery. I love it. And you submitted these voicemails a while ago. So who knows if you're still in the relationship with this person or maybe you are. And now you guys have been together for maybe six to eight months. I think you might have sent me these voicemails a couple months ago. But let's just, it's big sister time, okay? So what I'm hearing from you in this voicemail is a lot of fear and a lot of monitoring of yourself, right? Four months isn't very long. And you're also navigating dating, which is a really, really triggering thing for people who are in recovery from you know, any kind of emotion, dysregulation and traumatic background, it's like the battleground that's testing every single one of your triggers. So just be aware of that and know that about yourself, right? But my grandma, arrest her soul, who passed away last year, from Kentucky, super Southern, sassy lady. She used to say, don't borrow trouble. And it sounds to me like you're borrowing trouble. I hear in your voicemail, this monitoring of yourself and you're making a lot of assumptions. You say this person is kind and patient, but you express worry that the first sign of you showing your humanity and maybe making a mistake and 
having maybe an emotional reaction, they might just up and leave you. And I wonder if you've thought about this constant monitoring of yourself and being so hyper-focused on that and maybe more of an imbalanced way might be preventing you from just being in this relationship and letting it unfold. And I think what would be helpful for you, especially since this relationship is so new, get comfortable with the reality that they'll be in your life or they might not be in your life. It's so easy to think like, oh God, I finally found a good person and I don't want them to see the reality of me and this is the best chance I'm ever going to get, right? It's this kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Scarcity mentality that many of us who have grown up with trauma and are deeply entrenched in our toxic shame have. Like, this is the best I'm ever going to get. I promise you, if this person somehow leaves your life and if they don't want to accept all of you and every part of you, then it's best that they leave your life and that someone else will come along one day that might be a better fit. It doesn't mean that you want to find someone that can just take all of your shit, you know, that you can just dump all over them and re-traumatize them through your own trauma, right? No, but you're doing the work and you can be open with them that, hey, I am working right now on trauma healing. I sometimes feel like I get really, really overly emotional when I'm near my cycle, but right now I'm doing a lot of work to try to regulate my hormones and find a rhythm that works for me. But I just want you to know that if it seems like I'm a little more emotional, um, it's not you, it's me. And just have a conversation with this person that you care about and be open about it. Because if they're as good a person as you think they are, they will offer you the grace to be human, right? And it'll allow you to be open and present in this relationship. No. You talked about your period. And for those of you who haven't listened to my episode on menstrual cycle awareness, you can go back and find that. Menstrual cycle awareness is essentially a way of viewing your period as a cyclical process. In the the West, it's so common to demonize our period and say, I fucking hate my period. And you, you almost fight your body and you push it to the limit. I read a book a few years ago. It's called The Red Tent. And I'm not sure if you knew this, but in other cultures, it was very common for when women menstruated, they would isolate themselves. And I used to think, oh, how All right, everyone, you know what that means. That's it for today's free version of Back from the Borderline. To unlock the full version of this episode, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, visit backfromtheborderline.com or click the link in the episode description to become a premium submarine today. The full version of this episode includes the rest of my answer to Teresa's question. I talk all about how I have used menstrual cycle awareness to help me navigate the extreme hormonal ups and downs that come with my cycle every month. I also take a question from another listener who's really struggling with over-intellectualizing her recovery journey and just wondering like, am I too self-aware? Is that a thing? So if that sounds interesting to you, 
sign up to become a premium submarine and you can hear the rest. Not only do my premium submarines receive loads of additional premium content each month, but the support of my subscribers allows me to focus on podcasting full-time and invest more in research and production quality. But if you're not ready to become a premium submarine, that's okay too. You can support my work by rating the podcast, writing a review, or better yet, sharing an episode with someone you care about. To make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow Back From The Borderline on your favorite podcast app. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weaknesses, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you'd be willing to dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be able to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. I'll see you next Tuesday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.